The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. TIAA makes you a retirement promise, a promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off. LinkedIn presents. I'm Maura Aaron's mealy and this is The Anxious Achiever, the show that looks at the intersection of mental health and work, and how we can all do both better. Mental health is one of those taboo topics at work, still for a lot of people. What's interesting is that ignoring other taboo topics can also impact our mental health. And work is a place where we've ignored a lot of things for a long time, like motherhood and fatherhood, like depression, like physical illness, and menopause. Today, I'm joined by two guests who will share why understanding more about this phase of life and how it affects women's physical and mental health is paramount to running a successful organization. First is Dan Simons, co-founder of Farmer's Restaurant Group. Dan is a man, but in the midst of running and growing his business with $100 million in revenue, he also has a mission to normalize the discussion around menopause at work. He'll share why and how he does that. And we're joined also by friend of the show, Amy Gallo, author, contributing editor at Harvard Business Review, and co-host of the podcast, Women at Work. We'll hear about research, some of Amy's own experience, and how menopause impacts organizations. Dan, you are a man. You have written about and really taken on the mantle of talking about menopause at work. And I want to know why. I think that I just have to say first, it isn't my issue to experience. I can't live it. I'm male and I'm human. And so I think that menopause is a human issue. And so certainly one set of humans experiences it. And it just seems incredibly important that all the humans get it. So I'm sort of on a quest to solve my ignorance and be understanding and help anyone else who's ignorant get some learning. Was there a spark in your own life? Yeah, two specifically maybe three one started early you know my um both my parents are doctors but my mom was a gp and you know she's 86 now so there weren't many women doctors back in her time she was a bit of a pioneer and so she became even though she was a general practitioner she was known as a woman specialist <laughs> and she was talking about things like pms uh, you know as it was referred to and i just heard about it all the time like a lot of medical issues. So maybe that planted a seed and normalized it to some degree. And then I had a colleague at work a few years ago. I was asking her how she was doing, which is a normal thing in our company to ask. And she said, I'm a mess. This menopause thing is killing me. And I said, you know, tell me more. And she said, I don't even know anymore. Oh my God. I was like, wow. So I said to her, well, shouldn't we work on this together? 
it's just felt like a normal business conversation. So that was, I guess, uh, spark. And then, you know, I'm 53. My wife, Susie, is 54. So probably since she was maybe 47-ish, you know, her journey began. And I, you know, my ignorance was just palpable. And so those really have been the sparks for me. And so, you know, inside my own home, this is a big deal and super important. What does it say about the person who answered quite bluntly this menopause thing? Is this someone you've worked with for a long time? Is I've it- worked with her for, for several years. I think, you know, more than anything, it probably speaks to our work culture. It is a normal thing for us in our company to say when we feel abnormal or atypical, like that is just generalized normalcy for us. It was just her truth. It needed to be said. That's what we do. And it's no more than that. Amy, what did you think when you just heard the story of Dan's Dan's employee saying, oh man, this menopause thing? I mean, everything about Dan's story is, is bringing tears to my eyes, to be honest, because it's so what I wish had been my experience, which is I wish as a kid I had heard about this. I wish it had been normalized. I wish I felt comfortable talking about it at work, as comfortable as that employee. I will tell you, I have gotten much more comfortable, and I don't actually fault the culture of my workplace as much as just the the culture of society and how much we've really – I don't think I heard anything about menopause that wasn't a joke until three, four, five years ago. And so I think that woman had a lot of bravery. I think I've, I've definitely talked to people about my own experience. I would say in the last six months is the first time I really felt comfortable talking to male colleagues about it. And the response has been – amazing, right? There's been no side glance. There's been no even sort of discomfort. I do think that there are more and more people like Dan who are speaking up about this and who understand sort of the humanness of this experience and understand how connected it is to the way we work, to our mental health, you know, to our ability to just navigate through life. And before six months ago, I really wasn't talking about it with anyone except for women my age. Right. And that was really where my comfort zone was. Yeah. I, I mean, I have to tell you that even as I thought about doing this show, because this isn't a show for women, it's not, I, I really, oh God, I can't believe I'm going to say this, but you know, my own anxiety about my age really kicked in because being coming an older woman in the workforce in America, and Dan, I'd love your thoughts about this is really threatening. Yeah. And talking about menopause means guess what? I'm no longer <laughs> young and bouncy and full of all that, right? And so yeah. I felt like I was admitting something about myself that I wasn't necessarily comfortable. Yeah. Well, and even I mean saying uh, what I've taken to doing now is oh you know, I forgot that. I'm sorry, brain fog from menopause, right? Or, you know, I haven't been sleeping well. It's menopause. And I try to use that word. But I do feel like when I do that, it's like tattooed on my head. I'm old. Like, I just feel like it's not, it's a, it's a disclosure about my age, which I wish wasn't such a big deal, but all the research shows it is. And so I'm really trying to navigate how do we re- think how we think about aging, especially women aging at work and in society too, while I also work on my own comfort level with with disclosure. Yeah. 
So Dan, I want to zoom out a little bit. You have conscious capitalism right behind you. And I was recently watching a talk that you gave, I think, at the Conscious Capitalism Summit about mental health at work. You opened with a breathing exercise. Why is this important to you? And also, how does menopause play into the connection of employee mental health? Business for me is just a gathering together of people. I know the typical way to talk about business is to talk about things like companies and company performance and company productivity and, you know, initiatives. And I don't know, my whole life has just been obvious to me that it's just about people. So people need to breathe. We don't get taught how to breathe and we don't necessarily breathe in a way it's not intuitive. You don't actually breathe in the healthiest way naturally and unconsciously. I don't know why. Maybe some people don't. I don't. Most people don't. I think the research is pretty clear on that. So I started that talk and lots of talks with let's take a deep breath for a few reasons. It is helpful to me. So, you know, I do have to focus on myself first if I'm going to be good for anybody else. So I love to take a deep breath. I understand the the neuroscience behind it and the physiological effects. And then it helps bring the room together. And often what I go on to say to people in the room is, this isn't about me. This isn't about the talk. This is about us being in a place right now. And let's have this information be a journey. And so a centering breath helps you do that. What have you noticed about mental health and your workforce? I mean, you're in the restaurant industry. You just came through the biggest disruption to the restaurant industry probably ever. And certainly probably maybe in your career, I don't know. How has your thinking on mental health evolved? Mental health is just health. That's it, right? We can't be productive, care for others, hit the goal, do the work, be awesome. If, you know, we're on, if we're in the ICU, so let's just be extreme, yeah. right, with our health. I think that everybody's walking around, not everybody, lots of people are walking around with parts of them that are actually in the ICU. Mm -hmm. And so if we want to have a business conversation, I want to have a human conversation. If we want to have a, what are the KPIs and let's hit the goal, I want to have a human conversation. And those are the things that have led me to say, I would be negligent if I'm not talking about health in the workplace. I'm a moron. I'm not projecting that on anyone else. I'm, I'm just saying that about myself. And I think, well, therefore, if I'm not talking about mental health, which is just part of health. I'm foolish. Why am I focusing on let's run faster, let's accomplish more, let's do more, you know, let's gather, let's celebrate, let's, if I'm not focused on the health of the individual, which leads to the health of the collective, you know, more for me. And I appreciate your questions and I love this opportunity to talk about it. It just seems so incredibly obvious. I think the better question, I don't mean that your question isn't great, maybe the more interesting question is why is everybody? not talking about health and therefore mental health in the workplace if what they are allegedly trying to do is 
grow revenue, increase share price, you know, increase retention, et cetera. Why isn't everyone talking? Oh my about God. It? I mean, Dan, I wish I was unemployed. Trust me. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you know what I'm saying? I don't wish I was unemployed. But, but yeah, I mean, you don't have to convince Amy and me. Mm-hmm. And yet, I have a hard time getting big time CEOs like yourself on this show to talk about this stuff. I think the other issue is that it's health and mental health and even specifically menopause feels very personal. And so I think we're coming off decades of this idea that work isn't personal, right? That we sort of shed our emotions, our humanity, even when we show up at work. And I think it is quite obvious that that was never actually possible. And I think we're now reckoning with the fact that, okay, so where are the boundaries, right? Like, you know, walking into an office or into a speaking gig and starting being like, hey, I have, I'm in menopause. I had 14 hot flashes last night. Right? Like, that's not appropriate. But there is the connection you had, Dan, with your employee where you asked, how are you doing? And she felt comfortable enough to tell you exactly what was going on. And then your response, tell me more. Those are the conversations I do think are appropriate and to your point are critical to all of the things we want to achieve in the workplace. Yeah. This thing about boundaries. So Amy, I I run into this a lot. I I'll get off a stage somewhere, big group, small group, and someone will say to me, and sometimes people ask it if there's questions from the audience, you know, in, in sort of the full forum. But you know, HR says we can't talk about it, or legal says we can't talk about it, or I don't want to talk about it. And, you know, my response is, yeah, I hear you, but what are the consequences of not talking about it? What are you accomplishing? Because if we're at work, like in my business, and I want to talk about hospitality or the detailed steps of service that lead to a guest just feeling loved and wanting to have a restaurant that's beloved – I need the people executing those steps to be focused, mm-hmm. tuned in, ready to execute. So I don't care if you've got a broken ankle or chafing from vaginal dryness or you didn't put in your eye drops and so your eyes are super red or you've been playing too much pickleball. What's it matter? What's on your list? If one of the things on your list is interruptive to the goals we have at work, then it's a work topic. And for me, it's that simple. And, you know, I get a little fired up here, but like, you know, find someone to argue with me. I'm not (laughs) saying that everyone has to push through their own boundaries. If someone isn't comfortable, then great. Let's work on increasing the comfort level. Mm-hmm. But let's not say a boundary set in this place because of how you're raised or how you feel or just who you are, that the boundary has to be this permanent thing that we then work around. Why don't we work on the boundary mm-hmm. so that we can then work on the work? You're getting right to one of the things that I talk about in my work around difficult conversations, which is that I think we so focus, especially those of us who are conflict-averse naturally or anxious about um, potential conflicts, we focus on the risks of having the conversation, right? Is it appropriate? Will legal be upset with me? Will HR be upset with me? Will it offend this person? And we think about the worst-case scenario. What we don't think about are what are the risks of not having that conversation? And do those outweigh 
the risks of having the conversation. Mm -hmm. And I think we forget to do that important step of evaluating the costs of silence. And I think particularly around a topic like mental health and, and menopause, we're seeing the costs of silence, right? We're seeing women leave the workforce. We're seeing them retire early. We're seeing, you know, I mean, the statistics around the number of women, there's a 2022 survey where four out of every 10 women who experienced menopause symptoms said that it interfered with their work performance or productivity every week. And 17% of those people also, that same survey said they have quit a job or considered leaving because of menopause. And there was actually a, a recent report from the Mayo Clinic in just this year, 2023, that the cost of lost work time per year in the U.S. due to menopause symptoms is $1.8 billion. Wow. I mean, it's it's staggering to think about the cost on an individual level, right? The idea of like, I might have to leave my job. I mean, I had this experience. I went and had, when I went to the dentist. That was my fun activity before this recording. <laughs> I mentioned, because I talk about menopause all the time now, I mentioned to the dental hygienist of like, oh, I didn't sleep well. My, I, I think I need to change my dose of estrogen. And she was like, oh my God, are we going to talk about this? And I was like, yeah. And then for like, I mean, and she talked about having to leave one job because she wasn't sure she could cut it because she didn't feel comfortable talking about her symptoms and then moving to another. And then she loves this current practice she's in because she can talk about it. And the hygienist in the other room shouts over, it's all she talks about. And I was like, this <laughs> is excellent. Like, I love this. And it, it just shows the power of like, once we actually open the conversation, and she didn't tell me anything inappropriate. She didn't make me feel uncomfortable. She was definitely reading, you know, my cues and engaging in the conversation. But I'm seeing it on a personal level, the impact it's having. And those statistics, you know, talk about how important it is to businesses like Dan's and to the economy that we figure out how to address this so that women don't leave, so that they're, we're not losing that time, so they can remain productive. I mean, it's one of the things that gets me so fired up is that these symptoms for most women appear at a time when they are at the height of their career, when they are qualified, ready to move into leadership positions yes. or to, you know, finally do the things they really wanted to do all their career. They finally have the experience. They find, right? And then these symptoms come up. And a lot of them are cognitive, right? Brain fog, you know, anxiety, depression. A lot of them are, are cognitive. Much, yeah. You know, I... It, you're reminding me, and I just want to share this for listeners because I think it's so instructive. I, I was talking with a primary care doctor friend, Susan Abernethy, and she said, you know, even in primary care, people don't want to talk about sex. And she talks about contraception and she says, you know, it opens a door. It opens a door of trust. It opens a door of sharing. It opens a door of invitation into things that we don't talk about. You know, menopause alludes to a lot of the things that we don't like to talk about, women's bodies. It is a little bit about sex. It's about aging. It's about everything. And Dan, what I'm hearing from your leadership style is you're a door opener in the way that the very best doctors are door openers. Have you ever been hit with someone who's, whose boundaries come like right back up against you and shuts down? Or do you find usually people just welcome the door being opened to the things we don't often say out loud? I, I've definitely run into the door at all sorts of moments as it's slamming <laughs> shut on me, as it's open a little bit, but there's a foot behind it that won't let it go anymore. Amy's statistics 
really highlight, though, that you can talk to the hardcore capitalist <laughs> about just making more money. You could talk to someone whose spouse, I mean, if your spouse is thinking about leaving their job, mm -hmm. If you're the spouse, whether you're married to a man or you're married to a woman, if you're the spouse and your working spouse is thinking about quitting their job because of this, whether you're a capitalist or you're a spouse, shouldn't you know about menopause? Like you want to make more money, you want to protect your family income. So I was recently speaking to an audience of it was the um oh the sort of National Association of Broadcasters. Hmm. Just like random organization that had asked me to talk about this. And one of the men in the room said, there's no way I can talk about mental health with a woman that works for me. I, I'm just not going to be comfortable. Hmm. So I said, well, then what if I made the goal even more difficult? What if I told you, you have to talk to that female colleague about menopause? <sighs> And he he physically, you know, like sort of shrunk into himself, right? The like arms were folded and he was like going all fetal. And I said, okay, so that feels way harder, apparently. And he said, yes, I'm just, I'm an introvert. I'm private. This just feels out of bounds. And he said, even sitting here listening to you. I said, all right, then I'm not going to tell you how to talk about menopause, but how about we just talk about depression then? He's like, well, that feels easier. <laughs> so wow. all of a sudden, right, you just move the, it's like, I can't take that much pain. Well, let me show you what real pain is. And then the first thing doesn't hurt as much. So for me, there's a variety of ways to help people. And I have learned, you know, we're all on a journey that just because something is easy for me to talk about doesn't mean it's easy for someone else. And my goal is that I'm a good listener through the conversation mm. at times and, and, you know, on certain topics, I have just wanted to like, you know, preach and tell people the way it is. And that's not effective. And that's especially ineffective when you bump up against personal boundaries. But I could say I'm relentless on getting through the door with people individually or with groups, because I know what's on the other side is just all upside. I mean, for everyone involved, all upside. Yeah. Well, and I, I love that you said, Dan, that what's comfortable for you to talk about is not necessarily comfortable for everyone. I think about that around disclosure, too. Mm -hmm. I mean, and to be clear, like all my expertise on this comes from my own personal experience. And, you know, we've published several articles at Harvard Business Review. We've done an episode about menopause for the Women at Work podcast that I co-host. I'm not a doctor. I'm, I haven't done research on this. I'm just so interested and it makes me more comfortable. I've gotten more comfortable, actually. Like, I think about my journey over the last three years. I've gotten much more comfortable saying what's happening, why, what my experience is. But we also – there's women particularly who feel uncomfortable talking about their own experience and understandably. I mean, there's – one of the articles we published on hbr.org was from a professor at Penn State named Alicia Grandy. And she had a team of, of researchers who worked on this where they were assessing the stigma against menopausal women. And they were describing, they would present hypothetical scenarios of a, a co-worker. And they would say um, it was either a menopausal woman or a middle-aged woman or a middle-aged man. And they found that participants reported finding menopausal women less confident and less emotionally stable, right? So 
why am I going to sit there going, hi, I'm, I'm in menopause? But what was interesting is that they then found that to overcome that bias, so they clear the bias is alive and well, but that we need to be able to talk about it openly. And they did an analysis of what happens when women actually note that they're having, like they use the example of hot flashes. If someone, a woman just said, I'm warm Mm -hmm. versus, oh, um, you know, I'm having a hot flash, it's, it's menopause. The women who said that it was actually menopause were seen as more leaderly. Because they were, yes, which is, you would think the opposite, right, would would be happening. But the way the researchers say that their analysis showed that the the act of disclosing your own status by choosing to do it conveys confidence and stability, essentially like canceling out the other biases that people would otherwise hold about you. I don't want to imply that means everyone's got to walk around, oh, I'm in, you know, but I do think if you're making that choice, if you're concerned about how you'll be perceived, one, of course, understand the culture you're working in and how it might be perceived in that culture. But two, remember that it does give you a sense of authority and and people perceive you to be confident if you are comfortable doing that, if you're comfortable explaining what's happening for you. The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. In the last 100 years, we've seen financial markets swing, new currencies come and go, decades of savings lost in days, all showing that a retirement plan without a guarantee, quite simply, isn't enough. So more than a retirement plan, TIAA makes you a retirement promise, a promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life, a promise that pays off. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off. Hi, I'm Tomer Korn, LinkedIn's Chief Product Officer. On my podcast, Building One, we dive deep into what it takes to build great products. Recently, we had Zach Perret, the CEO of Plaid, and he shared about his struggles building a financial app for consumers and how he was able to turn it all around with a critical pivot. Take a listen. I personally couldn't resonate as much with the consumer set that we were trying to reach. I just didn't have that level of empathy. When we made the shift to building a B2B product though, I was building the product that I wanted. My co-founder and I were creating the product that we wanted ourselves and we had so much empathy for what that product was. Such a great insight. You know, in that sense, we got lucky because we were were creating a thing for ourselves. And then the people that we were talking to also had the same problems we did. They were fintech developers. We'd been a fintech developer. uh, We'd been trying to build a fintech product for a year. And so, we had such deep empathy. We had such a clear ability to... If you want to hear more of Zach Perret's story and the lessons that follow, listen and subscribe to my podcast, Building One. A lot of the people that Amy and I usually talk to in our podcasts are professionals who work behind a computer all day, but you're in the hospitality industry. I would assume a lot of your employees are hourly employees. Is it different, A, how they've been treated in their careers disclosing this stuff? And B, do they face different consequences when they're having a really bad day than someone who is working from home sitting behind a computer? I'm sure that it's different for them. Mm -hmm. It's important to say I'm not them. I have a different lived experience. I am super close with a lot of my staff, of course. You know, their lives for many of them have been so difficult that I I don't think actually talking about menopause, if it's really uh, disruptive for them, is the hard part. My Mm -hmm. employees are often 
immigrants to America. They are people of color. They are female. They are diverse in their preferences and probably, you know, neurodiverse. Like we've got all sorts. Right. And so I think they battle every single day with the discrimination they face. I have people tell me, you know, Dan, whatever coaching I get at work, it's not nearly as hard as the racism I face every day on the commute from my house and onto the bus and getting to work. Mm. So bring on the feedback. I'm not scared. Mm. So that I think one part is it's tough out there for people and that builds a thick skin. But then there's also there's a lot of cultural issues around any aspect of mental health. We spend a lot of time helping break through the Latino machismo and that aura and aspect that a lot of my Hispanic employees have and that they teach me about and explain to me how they've been raised and what it means to be tough. And it's the opposite of like our sort of, oh, let's all be vulnerable. That's terrifying for them. Yet they have faced so much trauma. So it is more, I mean, look, the more trauma and the more difficult your path has been, often the more difficult it all is to just live as yourself each day. So even more so, shouldn't we normalize it? Shouldn't we talk about it and unpack it and get into it? Because if I want the food to taste better, the cook needs to feel loved and know how to love. It makes the food taste great. And I'm serious. This isn't just, I'm not like, oh, let's sit around and hold hands. I'm a capitalist. I'm trying to run a really great business. And you need people to be at their best to do that. You probably know this, Dan, but what you just said, like employees who feel love and can love do better, right? And, And it's not just in, it's not just your cooks. It's like there's... There was actually a study done in a um, long-term healthcare facility by two Wharton professors who looked at what they call companionate love. That's sort of the academic term of like not romantic love, but it's love based on warmth, affection, connection, and that when people feel it, they perform better. Like they're just better at their jobs. And I think I'm sure there's some people listening who are like, did he just say love? Like, is he talking about love at work? And it's like, yeah, this is this is really important. And, and love comes in. I mean, I keep going back to that conversation you had with your employee who said she was, you know, menopause was really tough for her. Like, love can be even that simple phrase of tell me more or be feeling seen, feeling heard and listened to. Mm. Yeah. And the food will taste better. Dan, where does the rubber meet the road, though? Talking is good. What do employers need to do for people who are in menopause or who are facing any other challenge that makes showing up and doing this more difficult? I hope that business leaders could actually use what I've written as something that they don't have to know what to write. They could take the link from my blog and send it to their HR team. I don't actually think it's an HR issue. I would send it to the chief operating officer. I would say, hey, what if this is a productivity discussion within our company? What if this is a retention issue within our company? Look at how this guy's written about it. And you know, you could be on an all-male team. You could be on a male and female team. You could be on a female team. But when people have that CEO hat on, regardless of how they identify, where their gender is, whatever, I think the rubber meets the road with starting the conversation at work and then looking at whatever your current company playbook is mm-hmm. around health and wellness 
and saying, hey, can we make this topic actionable? So examples of that, people have guest speakers all the time at company events. Hey, maybe we should have a guest speaker on mental health. Hey, maybe we should have a guest speaker on like a few detailed issues and one of them could be menopause and we could talk about it in a, you know, from a wellness perspective, but also just a understand why your colleagues might be performing a way they're performing, understand how to inspire better performance. So your question, like, where does the rubber meet the road? What's the action? Talk about it and then look to institutionalize the topic through meeting agendas, guest speakers, defining it and calling it out in your benefits package. I'm offended when I see things like on a bullet pointed list, you know, women's issues. Like what, <laughs> what, you know, why isn't there one that says men's issues yeah, then? Yeah. And so the words matter, the way the benefits packet is written, the way benefits are discussed, any of that, I think are places that business people can take action. And, and again, that's why I think it's right that I'm talking about this. I'm a guy, it's something I lived experience. I'm talking about capitalism, productivity, humanity. And then I'd love to learn how else are people taking actions about it? I don't know, small groups. Like Amy, it's a real reminder for me when I hear you as, you know, you're smart, super bright. In addition, you are a woman, which is relevant for this conversation. And you said that you've been on your own journey about when you felt comfortable about it. So it's a continuous reminder for me that I can't make it okay for people. Mm -hmm. I can just bring it up. And if everyone gets a little more comfortable and uses the word menopause a little more often. So I bring it up. I got off a stage and a woman came up to me. I was talking to the national superintendent of public schools that I get asked, even though, you know, I'm a restaurant guy because of these topics, like I talk <laughs> I to it. all sorts of groups <laughs> yeah. and a woman came up to me afterwards and she said to me, I'm 57 years old. I've never heard a person publicly, certainly from a stage, say the word menopause. And I've never heard a man say the word menopause. Yeah. And she was emotional and she said, mm. thank you. Yeah. And I think you're speaking to one of the biggest things for me when I think personally, like what would be helpful to me as a woman going through menopause from an employer? And I think speaking about it is huge, right? Just mentioning it, hearing the words, somehow hearing the word makes me feel like I can say the word now, right? That it just opens the door, as Maura was saying earlier. So I think that's a big one. One of the other benefits, and I actually, you know, I've seen companies. There's talk of like cooling rooms where people have hot flashes or flexible work schedules so you can work from home if the temperature in the office isn't or, you know, you had a bad night's sleep or whatever. But I think one of the things that I think would have been most helpful to me was making sure that the health insurance that was offered to me included doctors who know about menopause because that was one of the real struggles was that I was having lots and lots of symptoms and I never quite figured out how many of them were connected to menopause. And I was seeing, when I finally figured out <laughs> what was going on, I was seeing five different providers, Wow! none of whom put the pieces together until I actually read that New York Times article, women have been misled about menopause. And I would, you know, I remember turning to my husband and, you know, reading this article going, and I won't swear because I know we're not supposed to, but going, what the, like, why did no one tell me that this could all be connected? Exactly. 
and I don't have employer-based health insurance because I'm a contractor, but if I was employed, what I would love is to know that there was a list of doctors who are certified by the Menopause Society of America, right? That like, where can I even get the care that I need? If my employer is giving me my health insurance, I want to know there are providers who know this stuff, who can understand the treatments that are available, who understand are open to hormone replacement therapy or other types of alternative treatments. I want to be able to access that resource. And I want my employer to make it easy for me to do that. You know, it's interesting. I was just talking to a friend who's a chief human resources officer at a very well-funded VC-funded startup. And she was talking to me about Maven Health. I'm going to give Maven Health a free ad, which is a, which is a women's focused healthcare benefit that companies can offer. And I do marvel sometimes because I'm 47. And when I first had my babies and I was traveling and I would need to pump, I was in supply closets. I remember being at a meeting in Microsoft in Silicon Valley and there was nowhere for me to pump. And I was in like the nastiest supply closet with like dirty mop. Nowadays, A, women don't stand for that. And B, they have wellness rooms that are gorgeous. Many places do. Not all. Not all. (laughs) But that's a lot of change in a short amount of years. Mm -hmm. And so – what do we see in the future for this? Is is this going to be something that stays like a stigma, like unfortunately mental health? Or is this going to be something like, well, actually, that's complicated because I was going to say maternity and paternity leave and breastfeeding, and that's still complicated, although much better. I'm an optimist, and I'm not waiting around for the future. It's up to us. We are going to make the future right now. I mean- my mom tells me about when, again, she's she's a physician, cancer was like a dirty word and they didn't want to talk about it. So your question is, what does the future look like? I think it's like, you know, what are you having for dinner? I'm having a salad. How do you feel? Uh, um, my back hurts. Yeah. Like what else is up in your life? Yeah. The, here's, <laughs> let me tell you about my menopause. What are you doing about it? HRT is great. And and it's like, people know what HRT means. That's an acronym. We'll get rid of the baggage that hormone replacement causes cancer, right? Like bad studies, bad dosage, bad problem, bad medicine, bad science. But yet that stigma has lasted oh, and huge. keeps a lot of women away. And, and, So I think it becomes the standard of care, and I think we start to teach men and women about it younger and younger and younger. We'll normalize it, Mm -hmm. and I think we can change society on these issues really fast. See, no one's opposed to this. Who's against it? Right. Well, what's, this it? what's the it though? Let's 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 just hold on. Let's pause. Yep. So there's one thing for me to be like me and Amy, who both essentially work. For, we don't work for you. You yeah, but, work for yeah. ourselves. Yeah. It's one thing for us to be like, oh my god, I just my rage <laughs> issues are huge because of my hormones. Then it is for someone again who's more vulnerable or who's trying to get promoted, and so. What is the it that we want? Is it that we're talking about it? Is it that we're like in the UK, we're accommodated for it? And we, you know, because I think that that's what's tricky about this stuff. That's what's tricky about mental health. That's what's tricky about breastfeeding. A lot of us are talking about it, but people are still getting punished for it. Yeah. I think what I hear Dan saying is that we're moving in the right direction. Mm -hmm. And I think 
the pace will be slow. It'll be easier, absolutely, more for, for women like you and me in that we run our own businesses. We're white. We have resources, right? Like there's a lot – there's a lot of privilege that we that comes along with the ability to talk about this. And I think the topic, I see it in, you know, my dentist's office. I see it in my daughter's. I have a 16-year-old daughter. I see it in even – I mean, I, when I was her age, I don't think I had ever heard the word, right? Like it's just – I do see this becoming more acceptable to talk about it. And the bias is still there, but the way we shift the bias is by – by talking about it, by leading the way that Dan's leading his organization. Dan's not the only one, right? There are other CEOs, there are other leaders who are taking this issue on. And I think that gives me hope. I think TBD on where how the stigma shifts with this movement. I mean, even in just since that New York Times article came out, I think the nature and frequency of the conversations have really changed, at least in my circles, to be fair. As we round out here, I want to put each of you on the spot to give some practical advice. Amy, I'm going to start with you if I am listening and I'm, I'm feeling the effects. You know, I'm really tired. I'm not sleeping. I have a lot of mood escalations. I would really like to be able to work from home a little bit more. But my boss is that guy who Dan spoke with who got very anxious when the M word came up. How do I prepare for this difficult conversation? You know, I think one, really understand the culture that you're working in. So I would love the advice to be, oh, it's normal. Just it, this is a normal thing. You know, most people go through this. You can just it's it, part of our humanity. I'd love to say that, but I want to be realistic. And if it's not a topic that you think will be welcomed, that will by bringing it up, it will incur that stigma or bias. It's okay to not use the word. And it's okay to describe the symptoms you're having without having to bring up what might feel taboo and which, again, might cause sort of negative repercussions for you. But I think what you want to do is be really clear. What is it you need? Why is it you need it? Again, only going into the why, only what to the level you feel comfortable, and then how it will help you do your job better, mm -hmm. right? And therefore, how will it help the the company or the team, right? I think you really want to be just very clear and also specific about what you're asking for, right? Because I think sometimes I'm fortunate to be able to have conversations that are a little more vague of like, I'm not feeling this way, you know, and, and to have someone like Dan who say, well, let me be your partner in figuring out how to make this better, right? That's ideal situation, more likely you're going to have to be able to articulate specifically what you need. How many days a week do you want to work from home? One of my favorite things to do when you're asking for some sort of flexibility or for a change in the way you work is to present it as an experiment. So could we try this out for six weeks and see how it works rather than I'm going to do this till the end of time. Yeah. And then that way you both have some experience of oh, how to go in those six weeks, how did, and then you can can adjust if need be. So that's one of my favorite sort of tricks. And then also just really focusing on how does this benefit your boss, the team, the organization by allowing you to do your job better? I, of course, have to look at it in two ways, right? As a boss or a leader, and then through the eyes of the employee. So as the employee, I would say, start with the mirror and look at yourself and get clear on 
how you're feeling, why you are feeling, so that you understand where you're at. And that's a personal health care journey, right? I love that. I just want to, that is amazing what you just said. Then my hope would be that clarity you can choose how to utilize with what you communicate to your boss. I believe that that clarity is an ingredient for confidence. Mm. And so if I know where I am and why I am and how I am, and I'm owning that, now I'm going to say to my boss, here's what I need. And I can use whatever vocabulary I want. You can tell your boss a little as to the why. You can not tell your boss. You can understand the law and how you are protected. You know, there's family and medical leave acts, and there are symptoms we are discussing that are actually protected. Mm-hmm. Well, and I just want to pause. ADA and, of course, age discrimination do technically protect you against retaliation for menopause related symptoms. So that's. I think as an employee, one potential way to sort of go about it. And then you have the conversation that accomplishes the goal, which is, what do you need? If you're clear on what you need, then you can figure out the words and the pathway to get to what you need. And maybe you might want to email your boss a link to my blog. I mean, literally, sometimes it's, I don't know how to say this myself. I don't know how to write this myself. And you don't have to say any of that. You're just like, Hey, before we meet, why don't you read this? It might help give you some context for where I'm at. And I don't really want to get into the details with you. Just wanted to give you some context. And this is where I know that I have, I can be supportive. I'm a guy. I'm running a company. It's a business conversation. And that is how the blog is written. So if you want to talk to your boss, maybe that is a way that I've provided a tool that's both helpful for you and helpful for the boss to absorb. So those are those are my thoughts. There's one thing I, I want to add because it, it occurred to me while you're talking, Dan, which is that sometimes you don't know what you need. Like when I was really in the depth of my worst symptoms earlier this year, I couldn't even articulate what I needed. And I was lucky that I had you know someone who I could say to, I don't even know what I need. I just need you to be aware this is going on. I'll keep you posted as things develop and what I realize. And she was a partner and saying, okay, well, what about this? What about this? Which is great. But I think sometimes you also, the first part you were talking about, Dan, of the sort of self-care journey can take a while. And if you feel comfortable, you know, if you have a boss with whom you can say, I've got some stuff going on. I don't know yet where it's going to go or how it's going to, what I'm going to need, but I want to just sort of open the conversation. I think that can be really helpful as well. I just want to add to that. The opportunity to get clear on yourself, the first thing that any one of us might realize is, I'm alone with this. And that's actually the first problem I'm going to address. Mm-hmm. And then you look yes. out there, and on this singular topic of menopause, be confident. A hundred percent, I mean, maybe 99% of people who are biological women are going to experience this. And by the way, it's not just once you turn 50. It can happen in your 30s. It can happen in your 60s. So you're in really, really good company, like basically a (laughs) hundred percent of the women that you know, and therefore every guy that you know, a hundred percent of the women that they know. So you may feel alone with this topic. But actually, if you look around with clarity, 
this is about the largest percentage on a single topic a that we could talk about. Men. And that's why that's why when you open the door, I mean, I don't know about you, Amy, if I say one word, I get an earful yeah. from anyone. I mean, I love that. Okay, yeah. Dan, last word. To all of your fellow conscious capitalists out there who are biologically male or female, but have bottom lines, what can they do as a next step to start embracing mental and physical and whole person health as part of the bottom line? Like, what's the best piece of advice you could give them? They can list out their stakeholders in their company, which will usually look like profit, customers, employees, suppliers, typical stakeholder list. And then they could add employee health Mm. as a standalone stakeholder. Separate it from employees, because when we think about employees as stakeholders, we think about working conditions and compensation and benefits, et cetera. So I think that's a step you can take to create a new paradigm and recognize that employee health is a stakeholder. And then they should make a list right next to it of the direct action steps they are taking to care for, recognize, and see the needs of that stakeholder. If they make that list next to suppliers and next to employees and next to customers and next to profit, they would be like, oh, those are easy for me to articulate. What they might find next to this new stakeholder of employee health is that they struggle to come up with the actions and the articulation of the things that they are systemically doing to include that stakeholder in their overall balanced decision-making. And I think that is the beginning of of a journey for a conscious capitalist to then recognize, ah, okay, this is where we need actions. Let's start to fill this list out. And then it just becomes like anything else that's part of the overall healthy recipe of a winning organization. Dan, Amy, thank you so much. Thank you, Maura. This has been great. Thanks, Maura. Thanks, Amy. That's it for today. Our show is produced and edited by Mary Dew. Our assistant producer and sound engineer is Nick Krinko. Many thanks to the LinkedIn Presents family and to all our guests for sharing their stories. If you love the show, tell your friends. I would love you to leave a review because they really matter in helping the show get found. You could also follow us or subscribe. If you have a question for me or you want to submit an idea for the show, find me on LinkedIn where you can follow me, message me, I promise I'll write back, or subscribe to my newsletter for more from the Anxious Achiever world. Thanks for listening.